Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Mitchell Cruitt. I'm one of the pastors here, and this morning uh, we are continuing our sermon series, The Acts of the Risen Christ. Uh, and as we do, I want to begin by sharing uh, some of the insights from a six-week study on the gospel message through the Gospel of Mark uh, from a study called Christianity Explained. Uh, in this study, they explain why uh, they uh, address only one aspect of the gospel each week over the course of six weeks. They write this. In the past, we could often assume that people had in their minds a basic understanding of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Uh, The job of the evangelist then was to build on that platform of knowledge. Uh, For instance, we could assume that people had a basic understanding of who God was and sin, And so the job of the evangelist was simply to convince you that you were a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Jesus was your hope in the midst of your sin. But now they point out in the U.S., only 40% of the population says they're in church on an average Sunday, which by my estimates is a little high. We've overestimated how many of us are actually at church. And 80% would claim to be Christians. And in many countries in the West, Only 5% of the population even have a basic understanding of the gospel and the Bible. So in our context, a typical modern Western person then is affluent, is well-educated, but knows almost nothing about the Bible. This means that in evangelism today, we need to begin with the assumption that the person we're addressing knows virtually nothing about the gospel, about Jesus, about God's word. In the majority of cases, this assumption will be accurate. Just consider, in a simple gospel presentation, how many different doctrines someone needs to understand in order for that message uh, to make any sense. There's things like the character of God, that he is the creator, that he's loving, he's holy. They need to understand sin. They need to understand that God sent Jesus. They need to understand his death on the cross, the significance of his resurrection, the need for repentance and faith. They need to understand that salvation is by grace. You just listen to that list. If you have total unfamiliarity with any of the concepts of the Bible, that's a lot to understand. That's a lot to take in. In the simple gospel, we usually contain most or all of these passages or uh, concepts, but people virtually have no understanding of any of them going into that conversation. And as Pastor Tony Merida points out then, simply telling someone, Jesus loves you and died for you, so repent of your sin and trust him as Savior and Lord for your life so that you can be forgiven of your sin, is confusing at best and is even alienating at worst for people who can't define sin and don't understand who Jesus is and what his death has to do with anything. And so as we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Risen Christ, looking at Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34, we find Paul in actually a very similar cultural context to the one we find ourselves in. Paul is explaining the gospel to a people who don't share any of his basic assumptions about the world or God himself. And so he begins to explain in a different way. So today, as we walk through Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, I want to ask and answer four questions about engaging non-believers with the gospel. First, why should we engage non-believers with the gospel? Answer, because our hearts are provoked by idolatry. Question two, 
Why should we engage, or where should we engage non-believers with the gospel? Where non-believers are physically and spiritually. Third, how should we engage non-believers with the gospel? By contextualizing the gospel without compromising the gospel. And then finally, what should we expect when we engage non-believers with the gospel? We should expect some to mock us, others to be curious, and others still to believe the gospel. But before we dive in, let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, we meet Jesus in all his power and glory. And we ask that today as we look to your word and as we continue to worship, we would see Jesus in his power and glory and beauty. And that that would move our hearts to long for him, to love him, and to be eager to then tell others about him. Lord, I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be lifted up, that we would be deeply aware of his love and grace and compassion for us. And that would then help us as we seek to point other people to Jesus. Lord, help us through our time in your word. Treasure him more and make much of his name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Uh, If you need a Bible to follow along this morning, uh, you can find one of our community Bibles uh, under your chair or the chair next to you. Uh, And uh, if you don't have a Bible please consider this our gift to you. We would love for you to be able to continue to engage God's word throughout the week. Uh, If you're using one of our community Bibles, you can find Acts chapter 17, verse 16 on page 926. You'll be looking for a big, bold 17. That's a chapter followed by a small number 16. That's a verse. Uh, Once you've found it, uh, why don't you take a moment to prepare your own heart and ask God to meet with you this morning through his word. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Look with me at verse 6. Question 1, why should we engage non-believers with the gospel? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Here we see that we should engage non-believers with the gospel because our hearts are provoked by idolatry. Our hearts are provoked by idolatry. If you were with us last week, uh, you'll remember that Ron pointed out that uh, in Thessalonica and Berea, Paul was preaching the gospel. And as he did so, the Jews from Thessalonica came both to Thessalonica and Berea and were opposing him and actually drove him out of those cities. And so the new Christians in Berea escorted Paul all the way to Athens. And once they arrived there, he sent them back and said, hey, please send Silas and Timothy to meet me in Athens. And now that he's in Athens on his own, waiting for them to come, he begins to explore the city. And what he sees provokes his heart. He sees a city full of idols. John Stott points out that the adjective used here occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It's not been found anywhere in Greek literature. And although most of our translations render it full of idols, the idea conveyed by the Greek word is something like the city was under idols. So we might say that it was something like a city smothered by idols, a city swamped by idols. 
It was so oppressive. They were everywhere. The whole Greek pantheon was there. All the gods of Olympus. And they were beautiful. They were made not only of stone and brass, but also of gold, silver, ivory, marble. They were carved by the best of sculptures. They would have inspired a sense of awe and wonder and beauty. I wonder if we might take a lesson from them as evangelicals of how buildings and structures might be used to inspire awe and grandeur of the glory of God. But in this case, there's no need to suppose that Paul was blind to their beauty, but their beauty didn't impress them because they didn't point to the glory of God the Father and the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in our world, where we don't see a bunch of these beautiful statues around our cities or in our houses that give us good fortune, we can sometimes have a difficulty understanding what does it mean to pursue idolatry? But as one pastor points out, an idol is anything we turn to that when we need something only Jesus can provide. So idols aren't just statues worshipped at shrines. They are substitute gods. They're functional saviors. They're anything that undermine the true and living God in the human heart. Idols can take a variety of forms. They can take the form of a need for a peer approval, the relentless pursuit for success and money, the drive for sex, pleasure, or food, the all-consuming allegiance of even a sports team, a pursuit of education, and maybe even obsession with a particular individual. And Christians bear the responsibility to tear down idols in our own hearts and to point the unbelieving world to how the idols they're worshiping can't actually satisfy their heart. And as Paul sees all of this idolatry, despite the beauty of these statues, despite how well they were carved, his heart isn't impressed. Rather, his heart is, again, provoked within him. Pastor Tony Merida explains, the Greek word translated here as deeply distressed or provoked in the ESV is difficult to translate into an English expression. It's the word, the Greek word, paroxuno, from which we get our word paroxysm, as in seizure, spasm, or outburst. The sense is that as Paul sees all this going on, his heart wells up within him so that he can't contain what he's about to do. And some try to translate Paul's reaction simply here as anger. They say that Paul was infuriated as he saw idols. But I think that's only part of what this passage is getting after. The best way to understand this term is actually to look back to how the Old Testament uses it. It describes how God feels about idolatry. When the Israelites would worship foreign gods, idols made by human hands, the Old Testament scriptures would say that God is provoked by it, provoked to righteous anger. But this anger is also intermingled with love and compassion for a people enslaved to these idols. Why is it that God wanted his people to worship him alone? The answer is that he loved them. He knew that he was the only one worthy of worship, the only one worthy of that ultimate place in our hearts. And so when he saw them worship other things, it made him angry because they were rebelling against him, but it also drove him to love and compassion, a burden for a people who are looking all the wrong places to find the hole in their heart. I submit that Paul, 
As his heart is provoked, experiences a similar mixture of righteous indignation for the name of God and broken-hearted compassion for the people who worship these false gods. He was motivated by love for God and neighbor. And Paul is provoked by their idolatry because Paul understands Jesus' heart towards his own idolatry. Sometimes we can have this impression of Jesus that he is the just judge simply waiting eager to punish our rebellion and sin. We think of him as the one who's just perpetually dissatisfied, looking down upon us for struggling yet again, for loving some idol more than him, just waving his finger at us. And while there is some truth to this, we'll see later in the passage, Jesus is a just judge. That is an incomplete picture of who he is. If you are in Christ, his heart overflows with love, compassion, and grace for you. When he sees you struggling with sin, when he sees you pursuing other things in that ultimate place out of love for it rather than him, his heart is burdened for you. His heart overflows with compassion for you. His heart breaks for you because he knows that sin is slavery and idolatry will not satisfy you. It will crush you. He wants life love, and joy for you. And he knows that what you're pursuing, if it's not him, will not end for your good, but it'll end in your destruction. And so, as Paul's heart then is provoked by the idols he sees all around, so too is Jesus' heart provoked in him for us when he sees our sin and idolatry. So, dear brother, dear sister, if you struggle not if, I should say, when you struggle with sin and idolatry. Please do not think Jesus wants you to clean up your act before you come to him. He looks at you and he says, come. Come as you are and I will give you rest. Why? Because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Our Savior is a just judge, but he is also gentle and lowly, compassionate and kind. And when he sees us struggle, his heart leaps towards us, desiring for us to be unburdened from the slavery that is sin and idolatry. And as we see later in this passage, this heart posture shapes how Paul will then engage the people of Athens. Like Jesus, Paul's ministry is shaped both by a righteous indignation and a broken-hearted compassion. Paul doesn't yell at the people. He reasons with them. He doesn't belittle the people. He appeals to them and even affirms the things they get right. But when we don't keep in mind Jesus' heart and attitude towards our own sin and idolatry, our attitude towards non-believers can get twisted. Sometimes we can become so angered by the idolatry and sin around us that we actually withdraw from non-Christians. We don't want to spend time with them. Or when we do engage them, we engage them combatively, angrily, simply looking down our nose at them. On the other hand, sometimes we can feel so much compassion for people who don't know Jesus that we begin to affirm what the Bible would call sin and evil. And neither of these postures is right. So I want to ask you, when you see sin, foolishness, and idolatry, not just in your own heart, but in unchristian people around you, what's your attitude? When you see 
sin and your unbelieving neighbors, friends, coworkers, and family? What does it stir in your heart? Does it simply make you angry to see how people are abandoning traditional values? Does it make you angry to see the foolishness that people are pursuing? Or do you begin to try to find ways to justify their behavior so that it's okay for them to live the way they're living? Or is your heart provoked with compassion that leads you to want to engage these people who don't know Jesus with the gospel in the same way that Paul's heart was provoked within him? And as before him, Jesus' heart was provoked within him for us. As Paul saw how these people were giving to created things the worship and glory that God alone deserved to their destruction, his heart was provoked both with a righteous indignation and compassion. Righteous indignation that God was being robbed of his glory and honor that he alone deserved. And a tender compassion that people were looking to created things that cannot satisfy for what Jesus alone can provide. And that led him to engage these non-believers with the gospel. So why should we engage non-believers with the gospel? Because our hearts are provoked by idolatry. Question number two. Where should we engage non-believers with the gospel? Look with me at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So where should we engage non-believers with the gospel? We should engage non-believers where they already are, both physically and spiritually. We should engage non-believers where they already are, both physically and spiritually. Notice what Paul does as soon as his heart is provoked by idolatry. First, as his pattern is, he goes to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. But then notice he also goes daily to the marketplace. Now, the marketplace of this time was not like our grocery stores. They didn't simply go there to buy fruit and vegetables and meat. The marketplace was the center of public life. This is the place where uh, you might imagine European city squares. You go not just to buy your groceries, but you also go to have a cup of coffee or to sit down for a meal. This would be the place you'd go for news, for leisure, to engage people in conversation, and even to form new relationships. And so Paul goes there to engage with people who don't know Jesus. And as he's there engaging with the people, he is also invited and brought to the Areopagus, which doesn't have any exact equivalent in our modern society, but might be something like a university, where the most intellectual and educated people would debate ideas and try to work things out. And so he goes to all these places where people already are discussing ideas, building relationships, in an attempt to point them to Jesus. But notice, not only does he go to where they are physically, he also meets them where they're at spiritually. In the synagogue, he reasons with Jews who would have 
already shared his basic worldview. And as we've seen in the past, his basic work there is to reason from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. That's his starting point. But in the marketplace, he would have most likely engaged with pagans who share little to nothing in common with his biblical worldview. And then in addition to the paganism of the common people, he also engaged, the text tells us, with philosophers who were Epicureans and Stoics. These are the philosophical alternatives to the religion of the pagans, but they also shared little to nothing in common with Paul's worldview. And as we'll see in a minute in his speech at the Areopagus, the place where ideas were debated, he doesn't assume they understand his worldview. He doesn't start with them where he starts with the Jews. Rather, he starts with what they already already understand, which is basically nothing. He goes all the way back to the beginning. So this is where we should engage non-believers, wherever they already are. Spiritually, we need to be able to meet them where they're at. And physically, we need to actually go where they are. We need to get outside these walls and the four walls of our own homes and figure out where people gather and to meet with them. On the next point, I'll explain in greater detail how we can meet people where they are at spiritually. But for now, again, I just want you to notice that first involves actually meeting them where they are physically, connecting with people, building the relationship to start. Paul goes to the synagogue, the marketplace, and the Areopagus. And so the question for us today is, what is the Pinellas County equivalent of those three places? What is the same function of the synagogue, the marketplace, and the Areopagus? Where do people go for leisure, for news, to form new relationships, and to talk about matters of great importance? I'll confess personally, I'm not exactly all that sure. It could be a variety of things. It's worth asking. Is it our public libraries? Is it the gym? Is it bars? Is it country uh, line dancing clubs? Is it public parks? Is it coffee shops? Is it restaurants? Is it simply walking through our neighborhoods? Or could it be in our individualistic society, the only place any of that will happen is around people's dining room tables? I'm not sure, but wherever it is that people gather, we need to go to them to engage them in relationship. And if in our individualistic world we can't actually imagine a place like this, then here's my charge to one of you. Take it as your mission to create a space like that in our community where people actually want to go to gather, to make new relationships, and to talk about important things. Some of you might have the skills to actually pull that off and to create a space like that in our community. But either way, we need to go where people are. So where should we engage non-believers with the gospel? We should engage non-believers where they already are, physically and spiritually. That brings us now to question three. How should we engage non-believers with the gospel? Now, I won't take the time to reread uh, this whole section again, uh, but we'll take it bit by bit. But verses 22 through 31 show us that we should engage non-believers by contextualizing the gospel without compromising the gospel. Contextualizing the gospel without compromising the gospel. Now, when I say contextualize, I don't mean change the gospel. That's why I said contextualizing without compromising. What I mean is explaining the gospel in a way that is both understandable 
and plausible to whoever we're speaking to without changing the core message. And the reason we need to do this is that we all have plausibility structures, that when we hear things, that structure makes it either plausible or implausible. To put it a little bit more simply, all of us have a set of beliefs and assumptions that we filter everything through. We've either been taught that explicitly or we've just inherited it from our culture. But as we hear things, that set of assumptions and beliefs means uh, everything will either be, no, that can't possibly true, that's definitely true, or maybe I'll consider it. But the underlying assumptions and beliefs we have help us to discern everything we hear on such a regular basis. And so the things that don't fit immediately get discarded as untrue, and the things that sort of fit we might be willing to consider. And in any given culture, there will be any number of assumptions and beliefs that make the gospel implausible or unbelievable. In our culture, this could be things like our view of the supernatural, sin, gender, absolute truth, hell, the exclusivity of Christ. Or we could go down a long list of any number of convictions that might make for our culture the gospel seem implausible or unbelievable. And our work then as evangelists is to explain the gospel in a way that people actually understand what we mean and it's plausible to them. They can actually consider, oh, maybe that would be true. Maybe that's something I should consider. All without changing who Jesus is or what he came to accomplish. To put it simply, we want to engage non-believers by contextualizing without compromising. But what does this look like practically? Well, let's look first at how Paul engages non-believers by contextualizing the gospel. We'll get to doing that without compromise in a minute, but let's start with how he contextualizes. Look in verse 22. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Notice his tone here. He doesn't start with an adversarial tone. He's rather looking for ways to engage his audience winsomely, even looking for something he can affirm. And though Paul totally disagrees with everything they worship, he's at least able to say, hey, it's a good thing you recognize you need to worship. He's looking for a place where he can say, yeah, yeah, we're on the same page. You, you get this. This is something you need. Second, notice in verse 23 how he uses the limits of their own belief system to build an open door to the gospel. He says this, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here Paul is going to one of the limitations of their belief system and uses it to create an open door to the gospel. Because many of the Greeks were pagans and polytheists who worshipped many gods, and use sacrifices in order to both appease and to get things from the gods, they were always afraid. Hey, we might offend a god we don't know about. And so they create this altar to a god they don't know about so that they don't accidentally offend him or her and then make their lives miserable. And Paul uses this belief that they don't know all the gods out there in order to say, hey, I know that god that you don't know. It's his open door to the gospel, using a limitation in their own belief system. Then third, notice in verse 24, he doesn't assume they understand the basics. He doesn't assume they understand the Bible or his worldview. He begins with this. 
the God who made the world and everything in it. And then for the next several verses, he goes on to explain what that God is like. Again, this is different than how he would have spoken to the Jews. And the Jews were already familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and they already shared much of Paul's convictions and beliefs. They already believed that there was one God who created everything. They already believed that as the creator, that God was just and righteous to judge the whole world. They already believed that God was redeeming a people for himself. They already believed that God had promised a Messiah to deliver his people. But it's at this point then the Jewish faith and the Christian faith begin to diverge. And that's exactly where Paul would start with the Jews, explaining to them that that Jesus was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. And then he'd go on to explain that the people God was redeeming for himself was now not just those who descended from Abraham biologically, but like Abraham trusted the promises of God, now fulfilled in Jesus. But with the pagans, the Epicureans, and the Stoics, Paul has to start way farther back, all the way at the very beginning, that there is one God who created the world. The pagans believed in many gods. The Epicureans believed that there was a God who made the world and then was no longer involved in it. And the Stoics believe that we, along with the whole universe, made up God. And so Paul is beginning not by explaining Jesus was the Messiah, which would not have made sense to them. He begins by explaining who the one true God is. He is the creator of everyone and everything. Then notice in verse 28 how he labors to show what he's explaining is consistent with what they already profess to believe. Specifically, he quotes from their authority sources, their poets, in order to demonstrate what he is saying about God being near to them is actually consistent with what they believe. First, he quotes uh, Epimenides, a Greek seer and philosopher poet, and says this, In him we live and move and have our being. In other words, we owe our existence to God. And then he quotes from Aratus, another poet, saying, For we are indeed his offspring. In other words, all people have been made by God and in our, some sense, children of God. Now, to some of us, it may stand out as remarkable or even unthinkable that Paul would quote pagan poets in order to make his point. And I think this seems surprising to us because many of us actually misunderstand common grace. Common grace is the biblical idea That God gives all people, Christian and non-Christian alike, many blessings that are not a part of salvation. So among other things, this means that oftentimes non-Christians are better people than Christians. Non-Christians actually do more service, actually live more moral lives than some Christians do. That's part of what the Bible teaches as a result of God's common grace to all people. This also means non-Christians will often create contribute and discover ideas that are genuinely true, beautiful, and good. Christians don't have the market on all truth. All truth is God's truth wherever it may be found, even if it's found among non-believers. Now, when we misunderstand this, we have the tendency to reject wholesale any idea that's associated with something that doesn't line up with Scripture, not seeing how there could be nuggets of truth within a system that actually reflect the truth of God. We tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But as John Stott points out, Paul's precedent in quoting pagan authors gives us warrant to do the same. And it indicates that glimmerings of truth 
insights from general revelation may be found in non-Christian authors. So listen, even when non-Christians are advocating systems and theories that are deeply unbiblical and even significantly problematic, we should not be surprised within that system to find that there is actually truth that people have stumbled on that reflects the character of God and the way God has designed the world. We can still, from time to time, find in these secular theories and worldview systems things that are helpful and even useful. And when we can find these nuggets of truth from non-Christian sources, this can even become a powerful aid in evangelism to show how what we're saying about Jesus is actually consistent with what someone already believes. But as John Stock continues, when we do something like this, we do also need to exercise caution. When Paul quotes Aratus and says that we are his offspring, Aratus was originally referring to Zeus, who is decidedly not the one true living God. They are not similar almost in any way. But is it right that human beings are God's offspring? In a sense, it's true. Although in redemption terms, God is the father only of those who are in Christ by adoption through grace, in creation terms, God is the father of all humankind. We are his offspring, receiving our life from him. And so in the same way, we need to, or Paul would have needed to be careful about using these quotes in a way that doesn't show, hey, we're believing the exact same thing, but shows, hey, there's something we share in common. So too do we need to do the same thing. When we use a non-Christian source that we're drawing from, we need to show, here's how it's similar to what we believe, but here's how it's dissimilar. All that to say, when we contextualize the gospel, we need to be careful that we don't compromise the gospel. As we've looked at Paul's speech so far, we've seen uh, contextualization involves several different things. Let me just review them real quick for us. Contextualization involves striking the right tone, winsomeness, grace, charity. Contextualization involves using the limitations of a non-believer's pre-existing beliefs as an open door to the gospel use their system to show them why they need Jesus. Third, contextualization means we don't assume non-believers understand the basics of the gospel, let alone the basics of a Christian worldview. We meet them where they're at. And fourth, contextualization means explaining where the gospel is consistent with what non-believers already believe or the authorities they're already looking to. Yet, if that's what it looks like to contextualize, what does it look like to not compromise? I think the basic way we don't compromise is to show how the gospel is in conflict with the cultural views of our of people around us. To show how the gospel contradicts or corrects the worldview of those around us. And we see several ways that Paul does this in his speech. I'll look back with me now at verse 24. Against the pagans who believed in multiple gods, and the Stoics who believed that all of creation was God, Paul affirms this, there is a God who made the world and everything in it. There is one creator, not many gods, and he is distinct from creation. Second, in verse 25, against the pagans who would use sacrifices to appease the gods and to buy blessings from them, Paul says this, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
In other words, he's contradicting the pagans here, making sure they understand God cannot be bought because God is the one who provides everyone with their life and everything they have. The third, in verse 26, against the Epicureans, who again believe God created the world but wasn't involved in it. Paul shows that God is involved in human history. He says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then did God disappear? No. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far off from each of us. So contradicting the Epicureans who thought God was far off, Paul insists, no, God is present, active, and involved in history. He is near to you. You can know him. And then fourth, in verse 27, Paul lovingly begins to point out a doctrine of sin which would have made all of them squirm. He says the purpose of God's involvement in human history is so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is a way of saying we all know that God's around us and kind of want to find him, but there's a problem. And James Montgomery Boyce describes it for us. He says the word used here for reach out or feel is the word the Greek poet Homer used in the well-known story of the Cyclops. The one eye giant captured Odysseus and his men. He wanted to kill them, but Odysseus blinded him. And although Odysseus then wanted to get to his men, it was difficult to get there because the creature was now groping around, feeling around in the dark, looking for the hero, but unable to find him because he was now blinded. So in using this word, it's as if Paul is saying, in our sin, we are as unseeing as this blinded cyclops. We instinctively know God is there like the cyclops knew Odysseus is there. But because of sin's blinding effects, we need God's divine grace to give us new spiritual eyes to find him and see him. Fifth, in verse 29, he points out that in this city full of idols made of gold and silver and stone, that we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art in the imagination of man. Unlike these pagans who thought that they could fashion the gods in whatever image they wanted, Paul is clear. God will not be tamed by us. God cannot be contained by our imagination. We cannot control him. And then sixth, Verse 31, Paul insists that they can know that this creator God would one day judge all the world in righteousness. Why? Because he's already appointed a just judge, and we know it because he's risen Jesus from the dead. And Paul goes here despite knowing that resurrection would have been difficult for all the Greeks to accept because they didn't have a category like this. They thought death meant that the soul would go uh, become a shade going to Hades with no possibility of coming back to life and eventually winking out of existence. And here, Paul says, no, resurrection. Jesus had been raised from the dead. And then seventh and finally, in these last two verses, Paul points out that the only proper response to this God who created the world and will judge the world is this. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. The pagans would have to repent of trying to manipulate God through their sacrifices and religious rituals. The Epicureans, who were happy hedonists, teaching that life consisted of following your desires, would have to repent of making 
pleasure their idol. And the Stoics, who were more pessimistic, teaching that life simply consisted of following your duty, would have to repent of making duty their idol. But Paul's final word here to all of them is everyone must repent or perish. And if you're not a Christian this morning, our invitation to you is the same. Based on this passage, our statement of faith says this, we believe that God commands everyone everywhere, lifted right out of this text, to do what? To believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that when Jesus returns, those who have repented of their sin and have received Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be raised to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord and the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. We believe that when Jesus comes back at the end of human history, all the wrong things in this world will be made right. And we'll be able to live in the presence of our Savior for all eternity in this world as it was made to be. That's the invitation to you if you don't know Jesus. So turn from your rebellion against God. Turn from your efforts to save yourself. And instead, turn to Jesus, receiving him as Lord and Savior, trusting that his death on the cross was a sufficient payment for your sin and that his resurrection from the dead is God's statement that your debt from sin has been paid in full. If you want to know more about what this means and what this looks like, please come talk with me or any of our members after the service. We'd love to tell you more about how you can know Jesus and experience this wonderful blessing. Now, for those of us who are more familiar with the gospel message, we might wonder whether Paul successfully contextualized the gospel without compromising the gospel. Since in this speech... There's actually no mention of the cross, nor Jesus' name. But there's at least three different explanations for why Paul didn't mention the cross, and Jesus is not mentioned here, that don't have to do with Paul compromising the gospel here. The first is, as Neil read earlier, this speech only took us about three minutes to read. The reason is, every speech we read in Acts is simply a summary of what was said. It's a basic outline of what's there. And so, it's likely... That if Paul's speaking about the resurrection, he would have included the thing that proceeded right before it, Jesus' death. So there's every reason to think that if this is just a summary, Paul explained more. But even if he didn't, it's possible his speech was interrupted before he could finish. In just a moment, we'll see that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him and abruptly brought his speech to an end. Paul may not have finished. He simply got interrupted and they were done. Or third, it's possible that Paul simply knew that he had a lot of groundwork to lay. He had to go all the way back to creation and was not trying to cover everything in just one conversation. And this would be consistent with his practice at other times, where he taught from Sabbath to Sabbath, or spent many days and weeks with them explaining things. He was simply not trying to cover all the ground all at once. But regardless, what we've seen in the speech is, Paul shows not only how the gospel is consistent with what the Athenian people believe and already assume, but again and again, he's showing how their beliefs are also inconsistent with the gospel. There is one God. He created the world. He stayed involved in the world. You can know him. You have to repent. There's something called sin. There's something called a resurrection. And if Paul would mention all these things, then we should not 
at all expect that Paul would shy away from talking about the cross and Jesus specifically. So what's all this mean then for how we engage non-Christians? Again, very, very simply, that means we need to contextualize the gospel without compromising it. We contextualize so that the gospel is understandable, plausible, and even seen as consistent with some of a non-Christian's pre-existing beliefs. But it also means then not compromising, pointing out where the gospel comes into conflict with a non-Christian's worldview so that they know when they decide to follow Jesus, here's all the things you actually have to leave when you come to him. Here's what you have to abandon if you're going to embrace Christ because here's what stands in tension with Jesus. So what could it look like practically to do something like this? Well, here's a a basic path you might take in a conversation with an unbelieving neighbor or friend. First, you could ask them, what do you think people need to be happy and fulfilled? This is the step of identifying their hopes, their dreams, their longings, making sure you understand the things they're actually committed to. Second, then you could ask, how many people are able to be happy and fulfilled in this way. This is a way of beginning to expose the limitations of their belief as they realize, oh, not many people can get that. That's actually pretty hard to get. I don't even know that I've gotten it myself. It's beginning to expose within their own system how they're not getting what they hope for. And then finally, you could ask, could I share with you how our most fundamental need is not just whatever they just said, but also knowing God personally. And can I tell you how that's possible? And if they say yes to that, then you get a wide open door to show them how Jesus is the answer, not just to the thing they're longing, but is actually the more fundamental need they need in their heart and how they can know him personally. Now, if many of us are honest with ourselves, it can feel intimidating to try to both show how the gospel, how Jesus is the best answer to the longings questions and beliefs of our non-believing neighbors and friends. And it can feel intimidating to then, in addition to that, show how the gospel contradicts or corrects our non-believing friends' worldview. And so if this is something you feel ill-prepared, let me just point out two resources for you. The first is a book called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener, an apologist from the UK. In it, Glenn helps us to see how freedom equality, kindness, justice, and progress, these things that our entire culture longs for and desires and believes in, are actually best explained by Christianity, are best explained by Jesus. And so reading a book like this will give you a clue into how do I talk about something our whole culture cares about while also showing how Jesus is the best explanation for our longing for justice. Jesus is the best explanation for how we'll actually get justice in the end. Another book I'd recommend to you that I do have a copy. If someone wants, you can ask for it. Uh, As long as you promise me you'll actually read it, I will give it to you today. Uh, But it's called The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, a dear sister from the UK who's now living in the States. And she engages with a creed you may have seen in uh, people's front yards. It goes this way. In this home, we believe that black lives matter. Love is love. Women's rights are human rights. We are all immigrants and diversity makes us stronger. And in her book, Rebecca engages this secular creed in order to show how each of those statements at times is consistent with the gospel, and then how at other times it needs to be corrected 
by the gospel, or actually exposed by the gospel. And so if you'd be helped by either of those resources, I'd encourage you, look for them. And again, I'll, I'll give you the secular creed. I only have one, so first person to ask. Uh, but for me personally, even before I studied this passage this week, I was beginning to sense in myself a need to grow in this area. Perhaps like many of you, I feel pretty well equipped to not compromise on the gospel. But what I feel less equipped to do is to speak to how the gospel answers the longings, hopes, and fears of our culture. And as a pastor and a preacher, I want to speak prophetically and helpfully to the cultural challenges we're facing. I also want to clearly address the questions that people are asking. And I want to do all this in a way that shows that Jesus is the best answer. But that feels difficult for me. And so a step I'm taking to better equip myself in this area is to participate in a cohort this fall through the Gospel Coalition called Biblical Critical Theory. Now, this is not what it might sound like to some of you. This is not the Bible justifying secular critical theories. But rather, like all critical theories, criticize the culture in order to point to a better hoped-for outcome. This cohort, based upon a book by the same name, Biblical Critical Theory, is trying to provide a biblically nuanced and constructive way of engaging cultural issues from a biblical point of view. And so it'll introduce and apply tools of cultural critique drawn from the Bible itself with the aim of helping Christians like us to reach beyond our fragmented, divided world in order to confront and comfort and even complete our postmodern world's deepest values and stories. So this is one step I sense I need to take in order to be better equipped to do what we're talking about. Well, this morning, I want to ask you, what step do you need to take to be better equipped to contextualize the gospel without compromising the gospel? Do you need to work on not compromising? And so you'd benefit from studying the gospel more closely? Or do you need to work on contextualizing the gospel and need to look at one of those books or jump in on that cohort with me this fall, which does involve a fee, but if you're interested, I'll tell you more. Uh, But what do you need to do personally to be better equipped to do this work? So how should we engage non-believers with the gospel? We should engage them by contextualizing without compromising. And finally, what should we expect when we engage non-believers with the gospel? Look with me in verse 32. He says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. First, we should expect some to mock the gospel. The very first reaction of some when they hear about the resurrection of the dead is to mock the gospel, which reminds us that the goal of contextualizing the gospel is not about earning favor with the world who hates Christ. It's not about earning brownie points with the intellectual or cultural elite. Because for some people, no matter how well we explain the gospel, the gospel will remain offensive. It will remain something that looks foolish to them. Jesus has promised this of his followers. The world will hate you because it has hated me. And so when we explain the gospel to others, we should not be surprised when in response some people either mock us or mock the gospel we proclaim. Instead, we labor to make the gospel understandable and plausible, again, not to earn brownie points with the world, the world who hates Jesus, but instead 
so that those who are open to the gospel might actually hear it, grow in curiosity, and believe it. And this is what we see next. Look again in the second half of verse 32. After some mocked, others said, we'll hear you again about this. This second group didn't mock Paul, but neither were they ready to believe. They were curious about it. They wanted to hear more. Let me just say, some of us feel this kind of pressure that unless we get people across the finish line to actually make a decision for Jesus, that it's not successful, that it's not a win. Listen, I count it a success if you tell anyone about Jesus, period. Full stop, that is a success. But it also should be counted as a success if after talking about that, they say, can we talk more? That's a great thing. That's a win that we should celebrate. And in some cases, we start, and it simply piques someone's curiosity. And then finally, verse 34 tells us that some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. We should expect some people will believe the gospel. In this final group, we see that some respond to Paul's explanation with belief. And this is a wide variety of people. It includes both men and women. It says some men joined him and a woman named Damaris believed. But it also includes both uneducated and educated people. The text tells us some believed, others believed, likely referring to simple common bystanders listening to this speech. But it also tells us that Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus Council, also believed. This would have been one of the intellectual elites who was thinking through all these ideas. A wide variety of people respond to Paul's message with the gospel. The point is simply this. The same message by Paul brings out a variety of responses. Mocking, curiosity, and belief. And it draws those responses out of a wide variety of people. Men and women, educated and uneducated. (coughs) And if Paul the Apostle had all of these responses, then we can and should expect that the same thing will be true of us today. Our responsibility as we engage non-believers is not to produce a particular response. That is the Holy Spirit's job. He gives curiosity. He gives faith. Our responsibility is simply to teach the gospel clearly with the aim of persuading people to believe. And as we do that, we can trust that the Holy Spirit will really work. That though some will mock and some will be curious, there will be some that, as we explain the gospel, who will actually believe. They'll come to faith in Christ. I hope as you hear this, this brings encouragement to you to be bold and courageous in telling other people about Jesus, trusting that the Holy Spirit will use even your and my bumbling efforts to bring people to new life in Christ. That's how God works. It's his work, not ours. And so as we conclude, seeing that we should engage non-believers because our hearts are provoked by idolatry. Just as Jesus is provoked with compassion, when he sees us in the midst of our sin and struggle, as we reflect on the gentleness and grace of Jesus towards us, it ought to provoke within us compassion to engage when we see people who are enslaved to sin and idolatry. Second, we saw that we should engage non-believers where they already are, both physically and spiritually. 
In the same way, Jesus came all the way down from heaven to earth, all the way to the cross to pursue you and to pursue me. So too do we pursue those who don't know the Lord wherever they are. And third, we engage by contextualizing the gospel without compromising the gospel. As Jesus did this again and again, and trying to show ways in which the gospel contradicted the prevailing notions of that day, all the while showing he was the hope of the same things they longed for. As Paul did this, so too do we point people to Jesus as the ultimate hope for all that they long for, as the antidote to all that they fear. Our goal is to point people to Jesus. And we should expect that as we engage non-believers, that some will mock us as they mocked Christ and hated Christ before. But just as people became curious by Jesus and wanted to know more, just as some people believed Jesus, we ought to expect that God will work through us to bring that about. So Northwood, let's give ourselves to this work of engaging non-believers with the gospel, contextualizing without compromising, because Jesus really is the best answer. He really is the hope to all that we long for. He really is the antidote to all that we fear. He really is the only one who can satisfy our hearts because we were made to worship him. So because of who he is, let's give ourselves to telling other people about him. So as we conclude our time together this morning, I want to invite us to all to reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word. And again, as I always say, please talk with someone about this. Don't let this be the last time you think about it. Uh, but over lunch or throughout the week, find someone within our church to process these questions. First, how do you feel about the idolatry you see around you? Do you even notice it? Or do you just glide by it? Are you angered by it? Or are you tempted to compromise because of it? Or as Paul and Jesus were, is your heart provoked enough to show compassion? Second, where do you need to go in order to engage non-believers? What steps can you take to meet people where they're at? And, and let me add, how might you bring a member of our church along with you in that so that you're not doing it on your own? Third, what steps do you need to take in order to be better equipped to contextualize the gospel without compromising the gospel? Fourth, how does what you expect from engaging non-Christians match what the scriptures say you should expect? And finally, if you're not a Christian, what is your current attitude towards Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Are you mocking him? Are you curious to learn more? Do you want to believe We'd love to talk with you more about who he is if you'd like to do that. Let's take a moment to reflect on what God has been saying to us. Jesus, we know that we were made for you. 
that all things hold together in you and through you and for you. So we pray that today we would first and foremost see for ourselves your power, your glory, your beauty, so that our hearts would be satisfied in you, so that our hearts would long for you and love you more than anyone or anything else. And Lord, as we see your gentleness, your grace, your power, your holiness, your justice, we ask that as we see and feel all of that, in light of the idolatry and sin all around us, that that would lead us to pursue our non-believing neighbors and friends and family and coworkers with a zeal to point them to you, to point them to Jesus as the only hope for what they're longing for. Or would we be able to testify out of the abundance of what you have done in our lives that Jesus is good? We ask all this in his name.